Hello everyone, welcome to, I don't want to say another episode of Tennis with an Accent, this is our first episode of the year, there's nothing another about it because a certain Novak Djokovic has been granted stay in Australia and me and my son uh, Matt here have done a couple of Twitter spaces as most of you have attended those on the issue, how it started, how it's still in progress and we both decided it's going to be a fresh perspective if we get a couple of Australian residents on board. And they can give the story through their uh, vantage point. And returning to tennis with an accent after at least a year and a half's absence, if I'm not mistaken, is James Rosemorn of StatsInsider.au. Uh, welcome back to the show, James. Thanks, Akib. Really good to be here. And also Vijay Arumagam, a Sydney-based Indian-Australian, if I can call him. He's been a regular on my cricket podcast in 21 and they both will join me and Matt and give some fresh uh, Australian perspectives, which is turning by each newspaper, uh, this story is on the front page. So I'll give this opportunity to Matt to get the conversation started, as we are both kind of very excited and eager to hear these two gentlemen and their respective viewpoints. So welcome to Politics with an Accent, or uh, Australia <laughs> with an Accent. Um, <laughs> Because tennis is really taking a back seat here. So James and BJ, thanks for joining us. We're going to peel away the layers of the onion here in terms of diving into deeper and deeper, more granular kinds of details. But we're going to start with the very big picture, the 40,000-foot view. And that simply is, and we'll do VJ first, James second, just what has been the lived experience of Australia uh, and Australians in these two years of the pandemic in terms of living under lockdowns, What's been the perception of how the government has handled this? Has it been too restrictive or has the relatively low COVID death toll in the nation been worth the, you know, the economic limitations, the limitations on freedom of movement? Just what's the perception? What's been your lived experience, the lived experiences of your friends, your neighbors? Just give me that view on the ground, starting with you, Vijay. Thanks, Matt and uh, Sakib, uh, for having me on this podcast. Uh, <clears throat> so to Matt, your question, Australia had a very good 2020 in terms of, <clears throat> excuse me, the pandemic, because Australia is an isolated continent uh, away from Europe and America, which means they were able to shut the borders down, down, down very easily, which means uh, they were able to lock the virus out in 2020 when it was a, a new unknown thing, which nobody knew what it was. We saw those images coming out of Italy and New York and uh, those gory pictures of people literally dropping dead. And, uh, you know, we thought we were living in a, a lucky country. Australia is known as a lucky country. Uh, but as 2020 evolved, as the science improved and as vaccination, vaccinations came about, the story started to shift. I think before that, what we need to understand about Australia for, for American, European and Indian audiences is Australia is a very much a federated country, though it's one country, Australian Commonwealth or a federal republic of Australia, not republic, federal Australia uh, as a country, each state or each province, Western Australia, which has got Perth, uh, New South Wales, which has got Sydney, uh, Victoria, which is where uh, Melbourne is, they all have the uh, premiers, uh, which is pretty much like the, <coughs> the US states and the governors, right? The premiers and their own laws, the way the rules are formed, which means the Australian states can lock each other uh, states out in terms of Western Australia can say New South Wales people cannot travel. So the interstate travel can be stopped or uh, blocked or, you know, you could put restrictions. So those are the nuances everyone has to understand about Australia. B broadly speaking, first 12 months, the pandemic went really well. Most of the Australians thought uh, 
you know, the Australian government and the state premiers have done a good job of keeping the, uh, the virus at bay and the deaths were very low per capita. Infections were almost uh, non-existent. We had, there were instances in late 2020, early 2021, we had cricket games and AFL football games happening with 30,000 people going and five infections or six infections means they used to lock down places, which was seen as pretty novel and people thought it was great and Australia was doing the zero COVID strategy. But as we saw in Europe and uh, in America, when vaccination started to change the dynamics, people started to realize the economic cost because Melbourne is the most locked down uh, city in the world, overtaking Buenos Aires in Argentina, which means disproportionate lockdown of a business and economy and especially small businesses started to take its toll. Though Australia has got a reasonably uh, uh, well-funded uh, welfare state, which means <clears throat> when they do the lockdowns, uh, you know, the employers and the employees get sort of benefits or some sort of a way to offset the losses. To cut a long story short, 70% <clears throat> of the Australian people thought closing the borders was a good idea. But that started to change when the second wave happened in India. Uh, that was around March, April 2021. Uh, you know, India has got now 3% of the Australian population is now either born in India or has got Indian relatives and stuff. I think that's where the images started to change when a lot of uh, Australian citizens and permanent residents were stuck in India with children and, and stuff. They weren't allowed to come back because of the Australian draconian border rules, uh, which means a citizen who's supposed to be here was separate from families. I think that really changed the dynamics. And then the Australian government had to make some changes in terms of uh, allowing the borders to be open. So in, in, in a nutshell, if you look at it now, the Omicron wave is surging. Overall, I would say Australia has still done a good job compared to some of the Western European or uh, United States in terms of how it has handled the pandemic in terms of deaths. But the economic losses are uh, disproportionate to the the, the, the havoc caused by the virus. And also now with, uh, with the new ways of working, living with the virus, Australia is struggling a little bit in terms of rapid antigen tests, uh, home kit tests, uh, and also how do we live with the virus in a pragmatic way? And also how do you sort out the difference between the various states, Queensland in North, Western Australia in the West? I think that's something they're trying to figure out. So that's the overall summary, Matt, I'd like to give from an Australian perspective in terms of how it has been. Hey, James. Yeah, I think VJ's point regarding sort of the, the the contrast between the states and the kind of power they all yield in Australia is really important. I think another really key element here in Australia is we've got this once in a lifetime pandemic, but we've also got we've got a deeply conservative federal government who has sort of seen the the pandemic throughout its course as an inconvenience and have been really slack, first of all, whether it's ordering um, enough vaccines to cater for the population, whether it's deeply sort of antagonism towards states that do lock down. And this has been supported and propped up by quite a conservative, well, extremely conservative, conservative Murdoch press in this country as well, which has sort of rattled the drums for the antipathy towards lockdowns and, you know, quite quite violently against them. So th then you contrast that with the situation in Victoria, which happens to have the most progressive state government in this country who has seen the pandemic and as, an, as an opportunity to, to lead and govern and show compassion and and protect its citizens, that's all been in, in the face of, again, opposition from the Morrison government and the Murdoch press. So that's made this really, really, really interesting conundrum. Something 
you know, when I know from a, you know, from a per capita death rate and cases and stuff like that, I know VJ sort of said that 2020 was uh, a relatively clean slate for Australia. The Victorian situation, though, again, was very different to the rest of the country. We were locked down enormously in 2020. Uh, we were um, part of the first wave that came in. And in that realm from like March through to May, we were in a lockdown with the rest of Australia. That was fine. We stayed in lockdown a little bit longer and we were derided by the Prime Minister in terms of what are you doing still there? It's kind of laughing at, at our approach. Once we came out of that lockdown, like the rest of Australia, we were the first back into it when sort of winter hit in Melbourne, which is the coldest of the capital cities in Australia. And that lockdown lasted pretty much through November, while the rest of Australia pretty much went on with life um, as normal. So that created this massive division in Australia and, and Victoria. And I don't think the rest of Australia really understood what we were going through in Victoria. Um, New South Wales did, you know, suffer through a lockdown this year as well, a pro protracted lockdown, but so did Victoria again. We went back into it. So this sort of, this will sort of speak to this Djokovic situation soon, why it's so pointed in, in, in Melbourne, why this is such a hot button issue on so many levels and why we're seeing this, this phenomenal intersection between politics and sport play out. But that's sort of, from my perspective, what we're seeing. The, 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 it does come down to an astonishing, astonishing federal government who has seen this from the get-go as just something they've never wanted to deal with and can't stand it, and it's got in the way of doing business. Um, so it's been you know, an incredibly enlightening experience politically as well from day one. Well, James, let, let me follow up on that point then. Uh, one would seem if Victoria is more progressive than, than, than most of the rest of Australia, now, a, a, a person listening to what you just said might say, okay, so then that would mean the Victorian government would be harsher toward Novak Djokovic because he didn't get vaxxed. Like that would be kind of, that would tilt toward the left side of the political spectrum. So like this cuts against, I think, maybe if not necessarily a stereotype of left versus right, maybe a perception of left versus right. Um, so like, is there, a, you know, have Victorian officials, the, 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 the people who uh, gave Djokovic the green light about the medical exemption, you know, whereas the feds and the border force, uh, you know, stood their ground on the visa, how, how, is, how, how is that playing politically and what are Australians' uh, perceptions of that specific theater of events? I think the Victorian government under Premier Dan Andrews was pretty flat out saying we didn't have anything to do with uh, Djokovic coming into this country. Obviously, they have no power whatsoever regarding uh, border control and stuff like that. It was then used as an opportunity by the federal government to show how tough they are on who comes into this country and under what circumstances, which is uh, a conservative trope which dates back to the mid-90s under John Howard's prime minister prime ministership in Australia. Um, and it's massive. It's a, it's a big vote getter for the federal government. It's something they um, 
they take particular pride in having a draconian approach to who comes into this country. Um, it's really eaten into the core of the moral core of this country as well. Um, and it's, it, to be frank, it's a quite a shameful approach to issues all around the world and asylum seekers and refugees. And it's something as an Australian, I'm particularly embarrassed and appalled by. Um, and it, it has played out. Uh, we've seen this as, as Morrison using this as an opportunity and as, as, an, as, as a distraction from his incompetence to say, look at me, I'm so strong and my stance on Djokovic is, you know, so intense. I think this is another case of Tennis Australia as well comes into the situation here, right? Like this is a commercial uh, notion, um, them, them knowing that he is such a massive draw card. He is the Australian Open, right? Like he, all of his numbers and everything speaks for themselves. And I think the Victorian state government is caught in the middle of this. They've got so many other things on their plate than worrying about a tennis player and where he is and what his, where his status is regarding the tournament, especially because they have no control over that, right? So I think that's been the Victorian government's response. As for the Victorian people, I think they've seen this play out in a state of bewilderment. Um, this is, again, it's, this is a federal government issue. Um, Statewise, they've got their own laws and and, and, and priorities regarding vaccinations, regarding mask wearing and everything like that. But that can only go so far. And I think this is, this is, this is, this is played out with, with Djokovic. I'll just come in because, uh, Matt, the exact question you asked uh, James, me and Vijay were, you know, on WhatsApp exchanging views uh, when this situation, you know, was just getting started. And uh, Vijay expected the court to rule in favor of Djokovic because it's a pretty liberal government and, you know, set of judges. So Vijay, I mean, uh, same question what Matt just asked. Uh, You know, you made this prediction. So did it exactly play out the way you thought it's going to play out? Yes, uh, Sakib. So I think I had a slight uh, disagreement to what James said in terms of the steps, right? So to Matt's question... So number one, Tennis Australia, Craig Tarley, the South African uh, Australian who runs a show, right? The whole exemption process. So for someone to say Victorian government was not involved, that's factually incorrect. I'll tell you why. Because there were two independent medical bodies. I mean, we can put within quotes what's independent, right? That's that's a problem with all these independent things. Brett Sutton, who is the chief uh, health officer of Victoria, who was there on, uh, like we had one in New South Wales and Sydney every day in the press. So... Brett Sutton, who's the chief uh, medical officer, health officer from Victoria, and an independent body from Victoria, constituted by the Victorian government. Both those governments worked, both those bodies worked very closely with Craig Tiley, and they were the ones who formulated the exemption for Australian Open. I think the context here is sport is very competitive in Australia, right? Melbourne is a sporting capital. We have Formula One, we have tennis, we've got Boxing Day Test Match. And other cities like New South Wales, Sydney wants to grab the Australian Open. Uh, Adelaide used to have the Formula One. Singapore and Shanghai want to grab the Australian Open. So there is a lot of competition. Every, as the federated nature, every state wants to hold on to these because Australian Open is a huge money spinner for tourism, jobs and stuff. So Victoria needs it. So that's the context. So when the Formula One event was cancelled last year, when cricketers, was, uh, cricketers when Indian and English cricketers were asked to uh, quarantine for a longer period. There was a little bit of a frustration and, uh, you know, that was developing in the sporting world. Is Australia becoming too hard to travel and work? I mean, 
play? It was, is Australia part of the 21st century? These were the questions. So the Victorian government knew very well they had to do certain things to make sure these big players come in. So Brett Sutton, who's part of the Victorian government and the medical body, they drew the exemption. So to Matt's question, Victorian government wanted Djokovic in. That's the fact number one. Now, James is technically right that the federal government controls the borders. They issue the visas. But at the lower level, when the exemptions were drawn, Victorian government was part of it. And this was the one that was sent as a questionnaire. The way the Tennis Australia got uh, frustrated was they were working with the Victorian government, but that was not endorsed by the federal Australian government at that time, which means they were going with what Victorian government was saying. And that's why fact number one, visa was issued. Okay, visa was issued by the Australian government. So the central uh, federal government was not talking to the uh, state government and they were not interacting, but they were all, you know, looking at different directions and passing the buck. So to answer the question, they wanted Djokovic. And I think the whole thing started to unravel in Dubai when he boarded the flight and put it out on uh, Instagram saying he was leaving. In those 14 hours, the whole outrage happened. And then the Australian politicians realized, including the Victorian government, we can't be seen as giving an exemption to a multi-millionaire tennis player when the whole world, I mean, the whole Australian population, including the Victorian population, has made so many sacrifices. And that's where the whole outrage started. They started to rip apart uh, the whole visa. To ask, to answer your question, Sakib, every immigration official who has shown up on ABC, Sky, and every news telecast has been telling, they've been telling from day one, procedurally, what the Victorian government uh, given as an exemption and the Australian government, the visa was issued based on all the documents being filled up. They used a technicality to give him an exemption. They tried to use another technicality to cancel the exemption, the visa. And that's where it became a legal thing. And the court, the judge was going to take the emotion out of it. And if you go by the rules, Djokovic hasn't done anything technically wrong because he has followed everything that Tennis Australia, Victorian government, the two independent medical bodies, which includes the Victorian chief health officer and the federal government, Australian federal uh, border force as well. So to sum it up, it's been an absolute uh, you know, mess up by the different agencies. Uh, <clears throat> but to say that the blame lies only with one party is, is factually incorrect. I think Craig Tiley has to go because Tennis Australia, he'll be really frustrated because he would be thinking... I'm advised by the uh, Victorian government. I'm advised something else by the federal government. How does it work in this country? I think that's the conundrum that they couldn't work it out. So to answer your question, Sakib, this was expected by the legal experts. Uh, and even in the court, if you see, as we say, right, they're taking the temperature of the bench. The judge, when he started to look at the evidence, the evidence was so clearly in favor of Djokovic because he hasn't technically breached any rules, which were laid out by the Victorian government, Tennis Australia and the Australian government. So therefore, when they took the temperature of the bench, they decided to pull out. I mean, as someone said, uh, the, the Djokovic was leading 6-0, 4-0 in the court when the Australian government decided, you know what, I can't fight this anymore because it's going to be a 6-0 humiliation. To answer your question, technically it's right, but I think you had to ask the moralistic question about why would you allow an anti-vaxxer, why would you allow an anti-science person uh, to come in? That's a completely different question. That's coming up, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> uh. So I have one more small question for James and then Matt will have a couple of questions. Uh, so James, uh, Vijay brings a very interesting point here about uh, Craig Tiley. And, uh, and Novak Djokovic, when he boarded the flight from Dubai, there was like a big outpour of emotions in Australia, which a lot of people believe led to the political intervention. So in the Australian ecosystem of your friends, your colleagues, workplace, news, is Craig Tiley also being held accountable? Because he gave a press conference 
which was pretty cookie cutter. He didn't want to take side. He didn't want to blame. And he knew, you know, there was some guilt. But of course, you know, he's a face of Tennis Australia, very smart businessman. Everybody says that. So he kind of came out of it not looking clean, but he didn't take any sides. So what is your opinion? Like besides Novak Djokovic, how are people seeing Tennis Australia and Craig Tiley in particular in your ecosystem of, you know, uh, yeah, in your world? Well, I think uh, in my world, I think a lot of people see Craig Tilly as 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 a businessman, right? He's he's in is in charge of a the corporate company that is going to be doing its best to maximise his exposure and have its best players operate on the biggest stage. And I don't think we can necessarily begrudge him for that. He doesn't tennis Australia, Craig himself. They don't have massive public. Uh, personality exposure here in Australia. It's not like they're household names. Tennis, yes, is absolutely enormous in this country, but it's enormous for a couple of months and then is does take a back seat to other sports. But uh, unquestionably, during those two months, it's huge. So I don't think emotionally Victorians or even Australians are, are that invested in Tennis Australia's approach to that. Personally, I see them, yeah, like this is a predictable approach. They're not going to come out and say, no, nah, no, nah, we can do without Novak. We don't really need him in our most you know, in our flag, flagship event. Like this was a predictable approach and I'll give them credit for, for sticking to their guns in this. But um, coming back to, to VJ's point, like in terms of Victoria as well, again, I think this speaks to... Uh, I, from an outside perspective, um, you know, from a non, non-Australian non perspective, if you're not living here, and as, as VJ would completely understand, that sort of the, the, the opposition between the federal government and the state government is actually quite volcanic. <laughs> they're not really on speaking terms um, politically. They're, they're so different um, morally as well. So I think that's only added to this really, really, really um, <laughs> bizarre recipe, a bizarre thing that is being cooked up. And it, it, is, it has only amplified this entire situation. All right. Uh, VJ first, James second on this next question. Um, you know, there's an appetite for the Australian Open, of course. It's it's one of the big sports festivals in your country every year. It's 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 your big uh, summer sports event. And then, of course, you have the ongoing reality of the pandemic. How much uh, how much conflict or opposition is there between the appetite for the big sporting event and, on the other hand, uh, wanting to keep the country safe? How, how much of a tension is there? between, you know, those two polarities, uh, you know, the, the desire for this big entertainment spectacle that Australians cherish versus the desire to keep the country safe and vaccination politics uh, uh, surely being part of that. VJ, how would you assess that push and pull at, at living there in Australia? So, Matt, it's a great question um, because Australians love the sports and sport is a very big soft power for us because we are not a politically significant country like the United States or United Kingdom. So, uh, uh, you know, grand finals, uh, Australian Open tennis, a boxing day test match, uh, sporting achievements as a country is very important for Australian psyche. And as you rightly said, in summer, there are two major sports. Cricket dominates for two to three months and those two to three weeks. Melbourne Park, uh, Rod Laver Arena is the center of the cricket, I mean, tennis world, right? <clears throat> so if you look at it, we had 35,000 cases in New South Wales um, on January the 5th. We had 35,000 people at the Sydney Cricket Ground watching 
cricket. And I was there as well, along with set of my friends. So what I'm trying to say is it's a very, very interesting conundrum because on one hand, we've got cases going up through the Omicron variant. Uh, we are a highly vaccinated country, of course, 95% people and a lot of us are boosted. Now they're opening up for children, but there are some vaccine shortages, et cetera. That's a different challenge. So on a day when you had so many number of cases spiking up and testing was becoming very hard to get by and people are on holidays, they allowed 35,000 people at the cricket. So that's a conundrum. So it is an interesting um, juxtaposition of how do we handle the pandemic versus how do people go to a sport? Now, there's a big New South Wales-Victorian rivalry, which James will also allude to, because Victoria, Melbourne is a sporting capital. Now, if Sydney were, I mean, and in Melbourne, before that Boxing Day cricket on Boxing Day, over 70,000, 60,000 people were there. Uh, again, there were restrictions, uh, not restrictions, the cases were going up, but still both the state premiers, because it's almost like a sporting uh, prestige or the pedigree. You want to be doing these right things because it's jobs, economy, etc. I think people have come around now that sporting events will happen, but at the same time, there'll be hypocrisy because whether it's AFL football or it's cricket, there are some exemptions being given for international players and their partners, girlfriends, wives, or you know, uh, their families to be flying in. So some of the local Australians have gone through a lot of hard yards in terms of you know, these lockdowns or nurses in Melbourne or Sydney. They were told no jab, no pay. And some of the nurses were asked to leave their jobs. Some of the coffee shop the employees were told, if you don't get a jab, you're not going to you're not going to be paid. So people at a working class level have a little bit of an aversion towards these big sporting stars from cricket, tennis, and AFL codes being given exemption. But I think they are seen as wealth creators or people who generate jobs and employments and people watch them on TV. So it's, it's in, a, in a way, it's a bit of a socialism versus capitalism, left versus the right. And as James talked about, that, that division is more and more polarizing in this country, politically as well as economically between the labor and liberal. Very interestingly, in Australian politics, liberal is right-wing. Liberal, what we call liberal is conservative in Britain. Um, uh, in Britain, just wanted to give the context. To, to summarize, Matt, I think people are okay for these events to happen. But I think the Djokovic uh, uh, episode would have left a bit of a bad taste in the mouths of a lot of people because a lot of people were forced to vaccinate vaccinate when they didn't want to, for whatever reasons, right? Religious reasons, um, or people had in a little bit of distrust. So now they're saying, here comes a, a multi-millionaire, Serb, world-class tennis player. He's given exemption by the entire Australian system, and a court is approved of it, which means... So I think that will put off some people. There'll be a few boos for Boy Djokovic. People would probably try to say there could be some hashtags on Twitter. People might go against everybody who plays against Djokovic. But knowing Djokovic, he revels in these kind of things. Right? That brings the best out of him. Uh, probably he'll, he'll probably use... I mean, Djokovic has this history of, you know, uh, victimhood is, is a stepstone for success. So he'll probably use this to galvanize. I think there'll still be good crowds at the Rod Laver Arena and Margaret Court Arena, whatever it's called now, uh, in the Melbourne Park, uh, because it's a big event. Uh, I think Melbournians love to go to their sports. Uh, they'll still fill up the stands. The irony is I think there'll be a vaccine check for people who go into um, the Australian Open as public, which wasn't there for cricket, but Djokovic without being um, vaccinated, he's, given, he's been given an exemption. I think that's a hypocrisy that uh, a common man or a woman, an average Joe or a Jill would like to call out. Uh, but I think in general, 
people have a, a kind of accepted the fact that you have to get on with lives and you need to run the economy because people who lost their livelihoods uh, due to the closures would want these events to happen because this allows the hotel rooms um, you know catering staff restaurants bars to be filled up i think so i think people want the economy to run max so i think people are becoming more and more pragmatic although the hypocrisy about vaccination of jokovic would be questioned by many hey james yeah i agree with all of that but uh, with from what vj said like in terms of yes australia is you know sporting obsessed and melbourne likes to bill itself as the sporting capital of australia and all that kind of stuff but at the same time i think a key point here is victoria is also exhausted at the moment <laughs> exhausted overrun um we're seeing n- numbers through the wo- roof we're seeing healthcare workers under enormous stress we're seeing people who have made massive sacrifices for two years now and lost income lost access to loved ones and seeing everybody like that to see a, a prima donna stance from a world-class athlete isn't going down wonderfully in the stomachs of many victorians right now yes we want to see a great open yes we want to see the best players at their best performing on an iconic arena but there is an exhaustion and to and to see this play out and to see the games happening again at a political level it's frustrating you know like that part is really 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 annoying and i think an exemption possibly would have been accepted i guess from the victorian population but the drama that has unfolded and I guess as well, I mean, a key aspect we haven't touched upon is the fact that this, this guy was COVID positive and was interacting with the community um, and with kids and stuff like that. Again, it's an added element of distaste in this situation, which again is, 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 is just causing frustration and fatigue and, and a little bit of anger as well. Okay, I'm gonna give I'm gonna give Sakib the next question, but I want to also ask this question because you do James first and BJ second. You talked a little bit earlier about the the enmity and the gulf, the, the, the canyon, really, between Victorian government and kind of local governments in Australia and federal government. Um, I listened to a, an Australian immigration law expert on BBC World News um, late Sunday night, uh, Monday morning in Australia. So, you know, essentially a day ago. And she said flat out to the BBC presenter that Australia's immigration law is the most complicated immigration law in the world, or if not the most, you know, certainly among the most complicated, nuanced, tangled uh, immigration law structures on the planet. Now, when when we consider that and we, 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 you know, appreciate that that's part of this very fraught Novak Djokovic situation, I want to, you know, just kind of connect that to your lived experience of Australian governance at the local and at the national level, is that gulf, is that disconnect primarily a part of laws being poorly drawn up such that they're hard to seamlessly and evenly implement across various jurisdictions? You know, is it more about how the laws are being written up or is it more about this lack of communication and the attendant lack of political will to resolve differences and work effectively together. James first, BJ second. Yeah, I think the as as I alluded to before, I think the approach over the last thirty years by liberal governments in this country has been to um, 
take particular pleasure in keeping out asylum seekers in this country and, 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 and you know, refugees. This is a country whose approaches to asylum seekers or refugees has been condemned by international bodies. This is a country who, who, who builds cages in offshore detention and puts its citizens seeking a better life in those circumstances and in those conditions. They do it. Uh, it's a neoconservative approach. They do it because they know it gets votes. They know it. They know it empowers their position. It, it, it's 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 it, it is really beguiling because I, I don't. I'd, I'd hate to think this is at the fabric. Well, I guess we we shouldn't probably go too deep into the history of Australia here. But you asked the question as well, Matt, in terms of okay, how that contrasts at a state level in terms of Victoria. Victoria's long been. Uh, a, a working class state. It's got a. It's got a probably more socialist labour uh, traditions than the rest of Australia. It's also had a lot more uh, migration come into Australia, uh, come into Victoria and into Melbourne over the last, you know, couple of hundred years as well. So, in, in terms of that, there probably has been. There's a more a leftist element that exists in Melbourne and Victoria. Um, which is in contrast to what we see in the bulk of, of, of Australia. Um, and, it, and it just happens to have all played out over this last couple of years, particularly um, during the pandemic, where, again, like we've touched upon, we've got a federal government who is all of these in all of these areas. For instance, I think listeners should, should probably be um, familiar with the notion that our prime minister does have in his office a replica of an asylum seeker boat, which he has said he looks at every day when he's in his office as being a, a proud aspect to him and reminding him of what Australia is all about, which in his view is keeping other people out and not into this country, which I just, I find that, incredibly shameful and it's 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 difficult to actually talk about in that respect because i think from a a human point of view that is um that's despicable so all right before i hand it over to vj for his answer i just want to be specific uh, on this point is the Mm. immigration law complicated as a deterrent as an intentional act of trying to keep people out or is it more about just being sloppy and again governments not working together well at the various levels of jurisdiction no, I'd say it's absolutely done to be to be confusing, to be difficult, and inaccessible. This is a sort of it's it's a it's a, you know a Kafkaesque kind of thing has been created to keep people out and to compete people confused and troubled. It shouldn't be that complicated, and from a human rights perspective and from a UN perspective, that is why it's condemned as well. It's it's illegal what Australia actually does. On, on the level of processing refugees and getting asylum seekers into this country. Okay, VJ. So, Matt, I'd like to give a broader perspective. If you look at a skilled person, anywhere from, say, India, China, or the Philippines, or Africa, if they want to move for a better life, getting a permanent residency, as we call it, green card in America, compared to the United States or United Kingdom, getting a permanent residency in Australia or in Canada or in New Zealand is a lot easier. So that's a broader context. So Australia in many ways is a lot easier to migrate to compared to the United States or Great Britain. That's been proved not just anecdotally uh, as well as it's proved in terms of uh, empirical data, right? Canada, Australia, New Zealand. That's where a lot of uh, people come over here. Now that, if you have the right skills, if you have good education, 
uh, if you've got a master's degree, if you've got good job experience, et cetera. That's a broader context. I think James has got a point because Australia is a signatory to how Australia treats the asylum seekers, refugees, et cetera. And in the last 10, 15 years, the rules have become tighter. They have these, what they call it, offshore processing centers, whether it's Nauru and other places and stuff. Uh, so, but this is a broader conversation. So is Australia treating the refugees in a humane way, which they are signatory to, signatories to the various packs to the global offices, um, global um, institutions? That's a different debate. But if you look at law, Australia follows the British law because we as a country, we are a British Commonwealth. So pretty much our laws are very similar to the, the British Commonwealth. Queen is still the head of the country. So I don't think the laws are very complicated. You're right. Our federated nature of the politics between the various states and the, the federal government and the political uh, war of words between the labor and the liberal, I think that is causing the problem. In this particular instance, it's a simple case where all the governments and the sporting body, Tennis Australia, wanted the superstar. The only reason why he was given an exemption and a visa, because everybody wanted him in. Once they saw the outrage, they decided, hang on, we've done something wrong. We can't be doing this. They tried to do two wrongs to make a right. And that doesn't work like that in a court of law. Djokovic is very powerful. He's influential. Not everyone can take Australian government to the court like he did. It's, we're talking about $250,000 to $300,000 being spent on lawyers. How many average Joes and Jills can afford that much money? So what happens a lot of times if this kind of discriminatory rules are applied on commoners, they just, when they're stopped at the border, they have to leave in the next boat or on the flight or whatever it is. Because Djokovic is privileged, he's able to take on the Australian system and he's won it in a, in a court of laws. To summarize, I don't think the laws are very complex, but James has got a very valid point about asylum seekers and how Australia treats his, uh, you know, boat people, etc. But laws aren't that complex. It's the implementation and the execution and the lack of communication between the, the various states and the federated nature of the politics and the pandemic has added to the political uh, you know, poisoning between lack of comms, com communication between the state and the Commonwealth or the federal government has added to the misery of it, Matt. All right, so I'll come in here now. I'll uh, start with Vijay first and then James, same question. So uh, you both know, like Djokovic is also seen as this anti-establishment guy. He's challenging the very roots of ATP, how business is done. He's trying to change business. He's uh, leading this new organization which is not fully established called the PTPA which is going to be in direct competition with the ATP so leadership you know uh, is my question here and uh, with the vaccine and pandemic the world is divided so people who are pro-vaccine are saying this doesn't show Djokovic in a good leadership side as some of the players like uh, the WTA player who got deported or some uh, the Indian guy junior guy Dhaya who couldn't get in because uh, the vaccine in India wasn't rolled out and some uh, Russian WTA player, I should know the names, couldn't get in because the Sputnik uh, vaccine is not accepted, blah, blah. So as a leader, he's privileged and he got in. Of course, he, it was not easy to get in. But then people who believe Djokovic is a true leader, he's fighting the fight because he's taking on these conventional theories and this paved uh, a way for future players uh, or other players to, you know, if we continue to live in the pandemic-driven uh, rules, to fight for this. So he's a role model to one half, and the other half think he's not a role model for a leader. So, Vijay, it's a complex question, but I think, you know, 
you like complex questions you like to talk about leadership how do you view the situation if uh, you know from a fan's point of view so saki before getting the leadership i want to make a confession about my position on this whole vaccination right i'm pro science i'm pro vaccination i'm i'm sucker for any approved vaccines to be taken by anyone yes people can have their differences of views in terms of religious societal political views but i'm a big uh, pro vaccine uh, pro science person i know it's a difficult pandemic but um, in my opinion we should adhere to the norms given by the various governments whether we like it like them or not in terms of getting jabbed so that's my view from that perspective uh, jokovic has been a, a very big disappointment in terms of his stance as an anti science anti vaxer and also it's one thing to be an anti vaxer it's another thing to come on his instagram i'm sure he's got i don't have the exact numbers 50 million i don't know how many, however number of followers to preach uh, and tell them uh, you know why vaccination is not right look i know jokovic has got his own style in terms of what he uh, intakes in terms of the food he talks about energy he he's got his views right i don't have to agree with his views right that's fine but the problem is he organized an event in 2020 when pandemic was still raging uh, and then he danced shirtless and he he made it to into a super spreader event in his own home country to me that's completely unacceptable that's something i don't agree with because uh, it was dereliction of duty moral responsibility there's nothing called leadership that is callousness that's that's almost criminal negligence in terms of what jokovic did I know Djokovic is very unpopular with tennis fans for a lot of reasons. He divides opinions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But to me, that act, what he did in 2020 with that ATP event, uh, is something very, very, very hard to defend. Um, but the funny fact is, there are people who defend that. That tells you how much the world is polarized, right? To your point, there are people who believe uh, in 5G being the cause, root cause for this whole pandemic. Uh, people want Bill Gates to be arrested. People believe. uh vaccines are going to make someone impotent you know all these conspiracy theories are floating around and hundreds and thousands of people have lost their lives and livelihoods somebody like jokovic who's a big superstar such a big influencer if he can't be supporting um the science and the governments in this difficult phase at least he could have kept quiet but he did so in that way i don't agree with this leadership but the counter argument is they'll say or the contrarian views they'll say hang on in a, a powerful individual it's a bit like 1984 taking on the totalitarian state um therefore we need to support him i think that's where some of these people support him but i'm not i don't belong to that particular group uh, but sakib to answer your question within tennis right within tennis jokovic could be seen as a leader because sometimes atp wta all these uh, groups like Uh, international olympic committee they have the corruption they have their own vested interests etc etc so if jokovic is using his power not to be a lackey of them or a hanger on he's trying to take them on if he's trying to support the younger players to get a fairer share of the revenue and distribution of wealth etc that can be uh, discussed separately as a tennis only uh, leadership maybe i'm not fully across the details but if he's doing those kind of tennis uh, based leadership i'm happy to support uh but if you look at it broader thing in a pandemic couple of years uh, being irresponsible callous um running an event just to prove that he's right and the science is wrong to me that's very disappointing now on this particular issue uh here uh, jokovic i think 
from a leadership perspective, as James talked about, a lot of Australian people are very, very angry. But to me, the anger should be directed at Australian medical fraternity, Victorian government, Australian federal government, and those people who made the exemption possible for him to come. Shouting at him, booing at him, when we know, when we all knew that he was an anti-vaxxer, anti-science, it's Australia who needed him the more. Djokovic didn't have to come to Melbourne. Of course, he wanted to defend the title, right? Uh, but it's the Victorian government, it's the Australian Channel 9 uh, TV network that has the TV rights. They wanted this biggest superstar. So if, if there is any anger from the Australian public that should be directed to those people who made it happen rather than the individual who has this notorious reputation of being anti-science. So I have no sympathies for uh, Djokovic from that perspective. I wouldn't call him a leader. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, in a democratic world, people can express their views about not getting jabbed. Uh, I don't think it's a criminal offense not to get jabbed, but to 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 popularize that theory, to make it such an influential thing. And also, he's such a big superstar. I mean, again, the other interesting part in the Balkans, right, in Serbia, in Croatia, and all the places, vaccination is it's, it's, it's hardly 45%, 50%. And even on the streets of Melbourne, we saw a lot of... Uh, Djokovic supporters, it's almost a bit of a, a Balkan wars happening. There are Greek flags, there are Macedonian flags. So could he have, could he have used his uh, influential position to convince some of them to get vaccinated? I think that's a missed opportunity because that would have helped uh, those countries uh, more than anywhere else. That's my summary, Sakib. Sure. So James, same question. Uh, how do you see uh, Djokovic's PTPA leadership here? Does it get impacted or does it get more strengthened? I think, yeah, again, Vijay's covered those points really, really well, and I agree with him pretty much 100%. My question with Djokovic in terms of the leadership that he's sort of exhibiting, what I don't understand, unless it's probably in a, a, you know, the anti-vax position all round, like... <laughs> Is the leadership the triumph of the individualism? Is this what we're seeing? Is this what he's trying to sort of express to his legion of fans, however many they are, um, that, you know, you blaze your own path. You don't, don't listen to what anybody tells you, which then speaks to, you know, this pandemic is, is, is grueling and demoralising the most vulnerable people in communities all around the world, of people don't have, who don't have access to first-class medical attention or, you know, these kind of areas. So is this what Djokovic is trying to, to champion around the world? And if that is the case, and which it seems absolutely that this is his approach, I find that, I find that a very, um, very depressing uh, form of leadership by a, a, a global icon, um, that this is the stance he no, wants I mean- to take. Maybe the question uh, uh, needed some more clarity from my side. Look, I'm also pro-vaccine, but I want to be, this to be a platform because if there's a, you know, there's a larger audience listening. So if there's mm. other players who are ranked slightly lower who didn't want to get vaccinated and Djokovic, you know, got this done with the medical exemption, of course, uh, the route was very, you know, it wasn't easy, you know, how he got here. So that's the point here. He's, he's not just fighting for himself. Uh, the, the anti-vax brigade or anti-vax belief, uh, players believe that this could be a larger fight, even though I don't endorse it. But I think that's that's where, uh, you know, I wanted to uh, project this question from. So uh, you spoke of lower players, but I was going to sort of mention Rafa Nadal for, as an example. Rafa Nadal's not a, you know, a massively, you know, a man of many, many words, but he sort of said, you know, it's a small, a, a small ask to be vaccinated and to participate in these events. Tennis players, these champion tennis players are in a privileged position that they travel around the world 
um, passing through countries upon countries upon countries, I think that's where the issue of, 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 of vaccination is probably more um, amplified there, right? Like this, these people are coming into contact with a, with a lot more people in a lot more different settings. I just think a little bit more responsibility and nuance regarding the issues of this, this virus um, is, is called for. I don't think, I think what Djokovic is, is, is trying to do is, is, is rather divisive in, in, in his community. And from using that as a global platform in this, in this realm, I, I, don't, I don't think is a particularly, a particularly great approach. All right. Winding down on the show, my last question for for you two guys is about Australian politics and your lived experience of that. Just as background here, um, you might recall that Emmanuel Macron and the French government lifted a curfew at Roland Garros. They had a nighttime, late night curfew for most of Roland Garros last year, but they lifted it for the end of the Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic semifinal. And there were elections coming up in France. So Macron was definitely thinking about the electoral calculus when he made that move. So as we shift to this Djokovic situation in Australia, what is your sense as Australian citizens? uh, You know, it's not about like predicting election outcomes, but just I think it's important to get a sense of for Scott Morrison, for other various uh, uh, public figures, elected officials who are either up for election uh, or, or who are, you know, seeking uh, political posts, what's the political calculus and how untouchable do various people, starting with Scott Morrison, think they are? In other words, does Scott Morrison have a strong political incentive to hold the line on the Djokovic visa question, which, you know, remains not yet fully resolved as we record this podcast on Monday night in America, Tuesday morning in Melbourne, you know, what is what are the political incentives and, and your read of how uh, the upcoming Australian elections are affecting all of these decisions, public reactions, et cetera? Start with VJ and then go to James. So, Matt, I think, as you rightly said, it's a great example you're bringing from Roland Garros and, uh, you know, how the French politics played out. Politics is quite uh, intriguing. I mean, quite interrelated to some of these decisions. As I said, Victoria is going through, going to polls uh, sometime this year, and then the federal polls are out there in a, um, you know, in a, in a few months after that. Um, I don't know the exact dates. So the point is, it's more, I think the political stance makes a huge difference, right? Because right now, uh, the Australian prime minister wants to be seen as a very powerful person who stopped a global superstar from coming there for the rules are the rules. But the fact that before he said the rules are the rules, there were a lot of people who were working towards giving Djokovic the exemption. The fact that they, that came out in public and that made the politicians look a bit silly and hypocritical, and that's why they had to go back and make these you know, big uh, pompous statements to prove uh, how they're going to, uh, how they're perceived. Now, the interesting part about the immigration minister, Alex Hawke, uh, Alex Hawke can still cancel the visa and uh, make Djokovic uh, a persona non grata for the next three years, which means he can't enter Australia for three years. That will be a huge political decision for a couple of reasons. Brisbane is hosting the 2032 Olympics, which is in Queensland, right? Australia would love to continue to host these big events. Now, banning Djokovic for three years at this juncture 
despite a court, a Melbourne Federal Circuit Court, ruling that he had followed whatever procedures were laid out by Tennis Australia, Victorian government and the Australian uh, federal government. I'm not so sure whether they're going to do it because in the short term, it will be very tempting for Alex Hawke to say, yeah, I'm the big boy. I run my country. Off you go, Djokovic. And he becomes a victim. And if that is going to have impact on sporting events coming to this country uh, in the future, I think that will be a political suicide because winning elections is very important, but having these big sporting events is very important for the Australian economy as well, right? Because the Avalon Air Show was cancelled in Melbourne. They don't want to be too many events to be cancelled. So they'll be very, very careful before doing that. At the same time, if Djokovic plays, it'll be seen as, as James rightly talked about, there'll be a lot of anger in the Victorian people. And that'll, that'll be a factor in the elections in terms of how people are going to vote. And that could go against these politicians saying that they favoured the rich and the famous. And while a lot of people couldn't attend the funerals and dying relatives and stuff. So Scott Morrison's he had 70% approval when it comes to closing the borders, which was six, seven months ago before the Omicron and other things happened, or March 2021. Now the ratings have tipped, and he's not a very popular prime minister uh, looking at the overall landscape. But one has to ask a question, if Labour were in power, would they have handled the pandemic differently? But the counter-argument is uh, the Labour states have done remarkably well in terms of lower debts, Queensland, uh, and especially the Western Australia compared to the liberal states like New South Wales. But how much of that has been uh, juxtaposed with the economic losses versus livelihoods? Right? So I think the, the political decisions people are going to make is, have I lost a livelihood? Have I lost a relative? Did I get my uh, testing kit? Did I get the vaccination on time? So all these things will come in. Uh, but I have a feeling Djokovic's issue will not become a political a thing big time in the future because people will move on after a while because I think this is the new cycle as James rightly talked about tennis is there in the news only for two weeks and after that uh, other sports once the, the footy codes AFL starts in Melbourne people will move on um, but still right now I don't think Alex Hawke the immigration minister is going to pull the plug and ask Djokovic to go that'll be a, a very brave move I don't think they'll do it yeah, BJ's right in terms of, Matt, your question. There is a federal election scheduled for sometime this year um, and it will be interesting to see what's happened over the last two years in Australia and as a result of the pandemic to see how that plays out. On From an outside perspective, you would think that none of it would add up to Scott Morrison being re-endorsed at the polls, yet his approach, I think, speaks to a lot of people in this country. He's recently, you know, famous for his... Uh, he, he, he's known for not really developing policy and particularly wanting to stand back and let... His thing is can-do capitalism, which has been sort of criticised as can't-do governance, which he's quite fond of in terms of... It means I don't have to develop any policies, I don't have to... Uh, pr- protect people. I don't have to sort of uh, bat for any vulnerabilities or anything like that. I can just sort of sit back and react. And he's also, you know, he's very big in terms of catchphrases. And, you know, w- whenever stuff gets murky, whenever things get complicated or, or hairy, his thing is, you know, lines like, how good is cricket? How good is how good are barbecues? This is his kind of thing. So the last federal election played out in similar circumstances where there was an opposition attempt to really reform taxation in this country to take away certain uh, privileges that 
uh, higher earners have um, in Australia. It was comprehensive. It was probably a little bit too difficult for many people to understand, but it would have had a massive effect um, socially. Morrison didn't really have to develop an alternative policy. All he had to do, again, was go back to those kind of tropes of, you know, how good is rugby or something like that, which I think speaks to a large proportion of this country. Key element of that is one of the other things that Morrison is very keen to do is take away uh, funding and of, 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 of major social institutions such as healthcare and education. So in tertiary education, particularly, this government has eaten, eaten violently into funding for those kind of bodies. So he's got a vested interest in keeping the population in Australia. He wants to keep that message very, very simple at all times. And for many, that really plays off. If he can speak to, if he can speak to a, Australia's a laid-back country, Australia loves sport, Australia loves barbecues, this kind of garbage, I think that really resonates with a large percentage of Australia. Whether that again plays out at the elections, that's going to be a really key thing to watch for this year. Sakib, any, any last question to wrap up? or? Yeah, I mean, uh, I have a question. Uh, uh, I'm going to throw it to you because, you know, this is a tennis podcast and if there is no Matt Zemeck question, I'm sure these guys <laughs> will also enjoy. So, Matt, I mean, you know, uh, with the vaccination, we all are, I mean, you and I are not pro-vaccine guys, but uh, there's a case of Jeremy Shardy, right? He has had some, you know, uh, health issues after the vaccine. So this Djokovic situation is also batting for like some guys. Again, I don't want to make it this an anti-vax, you know, promotion here, but just to give a fair voice to a player like Shardy, who hasn't been the same since he got the got the jab. So again, this is again more along with tennis leadership. Does it do to promote... Uh, that kind of exemptions for future slams or are we going to see uh, more slams requiring uh, you know vaccinations to get in I know we talked briefly about this uh, on the Twitter spaces so using Shardy's example in mind do you, how do you see that you're going to play out well I you know I think uh, one other player we need to uh, talk about in terms of this uh, Djokovic situation and kind of the political and tennis based ripples is the Czech uh, doubles player Renata Borakova you know, she ran into visa complications and chose to leave the country instead of fighting through the red tape, fighting through the complexity of the situation. So, like, that's a kind of a different strand of experience compared to Shardy, uh, but also, you know, nevertheless, a point of complication. And uh, I think in terms of, uh, you know, in what this means for tennis as a sport, I go back to something that Skip Schwartzman uh, said on our Twitter Spaces live show several days ago, not our recent show on Monday, but uh, last Thursday, late last week, he said that if tennis had a commissioner, none of this would be happening. And I totally agree with that assessment. I think that if tennis had a commissioner, someone who could lay down the law across all the majors, all the levels of tournaments, and tennis had a very consistent policy coming from one central executive you, you know, that, that it's okay. It's very complicated from the Australian governmental side here, but if tennis could be unambiguous and streamlined in its governance and leadership, well, you can solve the problem from that end. Right. And so I think that's really uh, one of the main takeaways from the, from, from this, for the sport of tennis, as we go into 2022, will players in, you know, through the lens of vaccination politics, see 
that they really need to band together because the tennis, a tennis life is a solitary life. A tennis player's earnings are, you know, individually earned, uh, you know, in doubles, obviously earned with one partner, but you know, it's not a team sport and it's harder to form a union within that context. Uh, you know, will we get to a point where tennis players begin to see that their best interests lie in coming together? Uh, that's, that remains such a fascinating point. For the sport of tennis. Now, f- so final item as we before we let you guys go. Now, VJ, you uh, podcast about cricket with Sakiv. James, you you work and do a great job at Stats Insider. Let's give you a chance to promote your work or your insights, projects that you're that you're uh, immersed in. VJ, then James, just uh, get, you you get the floor to promote uh, the work that you're doing, things that you're looking forward to in your various uh, fields of expertise. Thanks, Matt. Uh, so, I mean, um, my day job is completely uh, divorced from sport. I mean, I got a, a corporate job, so I'm fully busy with that. So, I mean, this is a passion. I mean, doing podcasts on cricket, um, uh, being a bit active on Twitter is a bit of a passion. I'm also writing a, a co-authoring a book um, at the moment. Uh, I can't give out a lot of details on that. It's around uh, uh, cricket and journalism uh, around sport. I'm co-authoring uh, with someone else. So, uh, hopefully, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to finish that in 2022 and uh, continue to be invited to other podcasts uh, if people find me worthwhile. Thanks, Matt. So listeners might know that Stats Insider, we pride ourselves on, on providing our users with first-class projections over a range of sports across the world and in Australia as well, as well as a really strong content arm um, which uh, aims to aims to facilitate first class sports writing as well. So it's a sort of uh, double headed sword in that respect. Um, so at the moment we're 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 quite busy doing NBA and NFL projections, NHL as well, soccer over in in the Premier League as well, and and soon we'll be transitioning into. Um, Australian Open mode, which is a really massive event for us. We do tournament projections and game-to-game projections. We're really proud of our live model as well, which we know a lot of users jump on and can see through a match the ebbs and flows. Um, and we use sophisticated modelling to do that, and our data guys do a just an absolutely phenomenal job with their work. And from there, after tennis season, as Vijay's mentioned, we're pretty obsessed in Australia with our winter sports. So that's rugby league and AFL. Um, and they're really big things for our company, again, through both our writing and our analysis and through our projections. So, yeah, it's always always a really busy time for us. Um, um, and this time of the year particularly. So we're excited. All right. And you want to find that at statsinsider.com.au for horse racing, tennis, Australian rules, football, rugby, NBA, uh, and many other sports I haven't mentioned, uh, obviously providing complete coverage of the 2022 Australian Open when it happens. So uh, James Rose Warren, uh, thanks for joining us. BJ, also such a great pleasure to have you on our program. Uh, you know, it really wasn't tennis with an accent. It was more like Australia and a politics with an accent. But nevertheless, uh, a great and very timely conversation in the midst of this Novak Djokovic saga. Just wonderful on-the-ground insights. We really appreciate your time and generosity for being with us. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs>